Welcome to Blockstream Talk number one. Our conversation today is with Dr. Adam Back, the CEO and co-founder of Blockstream. Dr. Back is not only the inventor of proof of work, but I think is probably one of the only people in the industry that can talk knowledgeably across the multiple disciplines that we now group together and call Bitcoin. Trading, economics, game theory, mining, not to mention the technical nuts and bolts behind Bitcoin itself. For the conversation today, though, I really wanted to focus on both the history of Bitcoin, because I think there's a lot of important context there, but also the future of Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is going and what its biggest challenges are going forward. I hope you find this conversation useful. Welcome to Blockstream Talk Podcast number one. Uh, my name is Jesse Knudsen. I'm VP of Financial Products here at Blockstream. Of course, for episode number one, we have to have Adam back, our CEO and co-founder. So thanks a lot, Adam, for taking the time to do this. Hi. So first, uh, <laughs> first time, first episode, Blockstream's podcast. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, the Genesis episode. Um, so what I want to focus on today is kind of the Adam back backstory. You know, how, how you got into Bitcoin and the early days of Bitcoin, the history of it, because I think, you know, for a lot of people like myself that maybe came in a little bit later, that's really interesting context. And I think, you know, offers a bit of color on the trends and challenges that are that are playing out today in Bitcoin um, that maybe some of the people newer to this space aren't, aren't as aware of. So jumping into it, I think, you know, Bitcoin is really interesting. I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that you see a lot of patterns and topics just constantly get recycled. And I don't know if that's because of the cyclical nature of the of the having cycles or what, but, you know, Nick Carter has the FUD dice. Um, Fidelity has the six common criticisms of Bitcoin. I think there's actually, you know, it's probably up to 10 or 20 now. But one of the one of the mainstays is that Bitcoin is old tech, right? And so if you often hear people criticize it and say that they've got something newer or better. And I think basically the the, the, the base of that criticism is that the first iteration of something is not typically the best. And it's not the one that usually ends up surviving and winning in the end. So I think people who often make that criticism probably don't know that much about the evolutionary history of Bitcoin and some of the Bitcoin-like digital currencies that came before it, like eCash and B-Money and, and that kind of stuff. So I was wondering if to start it off, maybe we could talk a little bit about the evolutionary history of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, of course, there are, you know, wider sort of generic technologies that are required like public key cryptography, hashing functions and things like that. But, you know, and I think the white paper maybe, uh, the Bitcoin white paper maybe cites a couple of those things like ECDSA, digital signature algorithm, but like skipping those which are, you know, very widely known and sort of generic uh, underpinnings for like a lot of internet security. Um, the and bear in mind also, Bitcoin doesn't directly use anything very esoteric for the most part, um, which is a good thing. In, in cryptography, you don't want to do, you know, new invented cryptography, building blocks, or get too creative like that because it's fragile. And if you're not an expert in it, you will tend to uh, end up making a mistake. And it would be doing superficially the right thing, but it would make mistakes. So being conservative and not too adventurous with the technology building blocks and understanding how to uh, combine them is key. So then in terms of sort of electronic cash precursors and building blocks, there's a lot of interest to have electronic cash on the internet. And certainly for, you know, at, at, in, in the early nineties, there wasn't, you know, many of the things we have today, like PayPal, which are superficially, you know, anybody can sign up typically it's much easier access at the time to receive payments. You need to be a merchant processor and it's pretty difficult to get one of those and it would be all covered in KYC and you'd have to pay with a credit card or a debit card and not everybody has one of those globally. So it was a pretty vulcanized, restricted and cumbersome payment system that, that was available and most people weren't using it other, other than to buy things, right? Or, you know, bigger uh, stores to sell things. So, People were interested to have um, something more internet native for electronic cash and um, for that to have uh, privacy like physical cash 
and so actually the the first as as I'm aware kind of privacy enabling piece of electronic cache technology was uh, by David Chaum which is his um, blind signature technology so it's actually quite an elegant and simple looking piece of cryptography once you see it but it you know it set a lot of people thinking about well the benchmark like this is possible and so after that there were many academic papers incrementally improving on that so I think you can scroll forward from that to you know mid 90s early to mid 90s trauma formed a company called digicash they'd actually you know develop the technology as a central server model as almost all of those electronic cache protocols were so unfortunately you you were relying on the server as a single point of failure that if the server would go offline or the company operating it would go out of business all the electronic cache tokens would uh, effectively disappear because um, the double spend database tracking which coins were spent was on the server and so that in fact happened with digicash you know they, they set up a demo server i probably have some uh, unspent coins on a backup somewhere but you know you can't prove that they were spent or not at this point and so that caused you know, it focused people's attention on the fact that the single point of failure was an issue and so the next electronic cash systems were more decentralized in nature so reactive to that basically so you know in uh, 1997 I proposed Hashcash as a sort of micropayment system for to get to get around you know the the problem that it's difficult for people to pay and it's uh, not very decentralized because there are you know merchant processes and things like that and uh, digicash in particular was sort of integrated with banks as though as the way that they saw that working uh, so they relied on permission effectively so they had a demo server that issued some free tokens and people said about People like the cypherpunk set about trying to sell things like t-shirts and stuff like that for these tokens to see if they could bootstrap a value because they were supposed to be limited in number but you know shortly you know partly through that experiment uh, the company went under and the database went offline so from there i i proposed hashcash and you know the the thing that enabled it to be more decentralized is there was no double cent no central database so it was more scalable but it wasn't respendable or you know sort of redeemable right so it was created in the electronic world it was mined so you didn't need a, an interface to buy coins they had a cost to create so it satisfied part of the equation it didn't satisfy transferring value to the recipient but it satisfied that it cost the sender something so it became a kind of postage stamp for anti-spam denial of service and things like that but immediately that I proposed it, it seemed to to cause many people to see an analogy with physical gold, like that this is digital gold, and to try it from there to work out how to make it respendable. So all, all kinds of ideas were brainstormed, and you know a few, uh, lots of like mailing list posts on a cryptography and cypherpunks list about you know, brainstorming about how to do this over some over a period of years actually. Some of them anonymous because um, the cypherpunks were interested in uh, privacy and uh, remailers and things like that. And actually, the the hashcash system was partly reactive to spam in the remailer network. And I was running a remailer at that time, and people would spam through it. So it was a kind of way to preserve privacy while combating spam as well. Right? So in any case, then the the two major protocols around that time so it's like a year later 1998 hashcash was in 1997 were by Wei Dai with bmoney and nick sabo with bitgold and they were both using this kind of uh mine the coins using hashcash but then work out you know an outline of how that could form a decentralized respendable electronic cash system so you know they both had the concept of a broadcast ledger that was verified by many nodes but they were you know not quite implementable i guess and or, or there were details to work out and there was a bit of human invention involved like super nodes or 
you know, a, a group of supernodes, like a federation that would have to decide periodically what the difficulty should be, or in Bitgold's case, it was just assuming that people would create coins as they wished. And if a lot of coins were created in a period that, well, I think he was calling those stamps. So people would create a lot of stamps in a period so that you could create as many or as few as you wanted. And if there was an interval where a lot were created, they would be considered not very scarce. So you'd need, and then you'd have a specialized market to assemble rare and common stamps into a standardized value coin. So apparently this happens in stamped collections that are market makers that assemble standard values. So he, he had that kind of thinking, but you know, there's a lot of human involvement there. So that the, in terms of, you know, did that, you know, what held that back? I think it was the, the human involvement in, in that. And of course it didn't get implemented for related reasons. So the next bit of deployed technology actually was RPAL, reusable proof of work by Hal Finney. And um, that one actually didn't directly solve that difficulty problem. It still had the same problem, but it was a kind of combination of a Chorm server. So it had financial privacy well, where Waydice and B-Money and Nick Sabah's BitGold, I think had similar privacy trade-offs to Bitcoin in, in outline. So Hal Finney's had much stronger privacy, but it was centralized. And he used um, this, at the time, new type of hardware, which is so-called trustworthy computing hardware. I was going to say, do you see it as like, so there's a lot of, you know, projects and effort that came in before. Do you see it as like an incremental improvement on these previous efforts or is it a, a you know, a big leap forward? Um, I mean, I think it's, it solved a couple of key problems that people hadn't solved, hadn't figured out how to solve. And I think given, you know, the, the cypherpunks, particularly like, you know, Hal Finney and some of the others were implementers, if they had figured out how to solve the missing problems, they would have rushed off and implemented it. So I think the point is that Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin design did solve some key problems. And I think the big one is the difficulty adjustment mechanism. Basically, the previous systems, I mean, it sounds simple in hindsight, but these things never are. You know, if you're, if you're trying to find a solution to something and, you know, everybody, hundreds of people that are interested can miss something. And then when you see the solution, you go, well, that looks simple. Why did nobody think of that? And that's just the way it works. So I think uh, that the previous systems try to target a stable price generally. Yeah. So those systems had too much human involvement. And so Bitcoin was able to define something that could be fully validated by a distributed system, you know, an automated system with no human involvement, which is that it can control the rate of supply and then just leave it to the market to determine the price and the price will be what it is. And so with that, you know, different way of looking at it, it becomes possible to make an automated system. And of course, there's this so quite- it's a supply curve in the issuance. Right. It's... And I mean, there's quite a bit of ingenuity, I would say in, you know, in the details of that. But I think basically if somebody had popped up on the Cypunks list and said, look, do this, it might have been enough for other people to fill in the details. Um, I, mean, I have a sort of suspicion that, because there there are the, some of the, the sort of, Design problems are established computer science problems. So a lot of people have heard at this point about a Byzantine generals problem. And so that is uh, basically a coordination problem in a distributed system. And so, but it, it works with an identified set of participants. And so you have to have sort of identity and a problem in a distributed system, like a permissionless distributed system is there's no there's no central party that you can trust to you know issue identities one per computer one per human something like that right and so you get a civil attack i.e that one person can pretend to be a million people and gain some advantage so it it, it seems to me that i mean i'm sort of guessing at the thought process but if you connect that that you know the thought process that led satoshi to the, using the proof of work both for uh, mining and creating coins and to processing uh, transactions in the network. 
could be that if you look at it, so that there are some other systems that use Hashcash for creating pseudonyms. So you have the same problem with um, like domain names and handles in chat system things, things like that, right? Which is people will come along and take all the names if they're free. And so you want to put a cost. And so there were some systems that didn't use credit cards, but used Hashcash proof of work to reserve names just to stop, you know, make it expensive so they take all the names. Yeah. So it seemed to me that you could bridge the distributed system that's Bitcoin. You know, this is sort of like looking at it in hindsight, uh, what, how that thought process might have occurred. So I don't know. You know, we, nobody knows why or how, but this seems logical, right? So if you look at it, the, the Byzantine General's problem has identities and you've got a system without identities. And if you look around, there are people using Hashcash proof of work to have a cost to create identities. So if you assemble the two things together, like you, you make each node do some work to get an identity and then it can participate in a normal Byzantine generals problem for like one block, and then you can do it again. And if you'd arrived at that combination, you might realize, well, maybe you don't even need identities. You can just sort of anonymously do work proportional. So anyway, that's, that is finally the way that Bitcoin works. So this is kind of some supposition. I don't, I don't know if that's actually how that was arrived at. So I think, you know, Bitcoin started from a different direction, which is it sold, it, it provided a working decentralized solution. But I think people sometimes have the intuition that the first version of a technology is a kind of prototype and has a lot of room to improve. And that's generally a reasonable assumption, I would say. And, but if, you know, surprisingly, it seems that there's something unusual about Bitcoin. So in 2013, I spent, you know, about four months of all my spare time trying to find any way to appreciably improve Bitcoin across, you know, scalability, uh, decentralization, privacy, fungibility, making it easier for people to mine on smaller devices, get more on coins, like a, a bunch of uh, kind of metrics sort of that I consider to be metrics of improvement. And so I looked at lots of different, you know, changing parameters, changing design, changing network, changing cryptography. And, you know, I came up with lots of different ideas, some of which have been formally proposed by other people since. But basically, to my surprise, it seemed that almost anything you did that arguably improved it in one way made it worse in multiple other ways. So it made it more complicated, used more bandwidth, made some other aspect of the system just objectively worse. And so I came to think about it that Bitcoin kind of exists in a narrow pocket of design space. I mean, you know, the, the design space of all possible designs is an enormous search space, right? And counterintuitively, it seems like you can't really significantly improve it. And so that, that you know, without, and bear in mind, I come from a background of like, just have a PhD in distributed systems. And I spent most of my career working on sort of large scale uh, internet systems for startups and big companies and security protocols and things. So I feel like I have a reasonable chance, if anybody does, of incrementally improving something of this nature and basically I gave it a shot and concluded wow there's literally basically nothing you know everything you do makes it worse which was not what I was expecting I was like great let's you know improve you know improve the privacy improve the fungibility make it more easier to mine on small devices make it so that you can participate in mining in a very minimal way without needing to use a pool and like basically nothing appears to be possible and so that's not what people expect, but they don't, you know, they haven't gone through this process. So they don't have this realization. So, you know, when people say that, you know, all these old kinds, they don't have any innovation, that's not actually, I mean, that's actually a grounded statement. Like it's actually true um, in the sense that, you know, they wanted to do an effect. So they cut some corners, made some trade-offs and they did it anyway. And each of them is, 
typically objectively worse, typically much worse because of the kind of lower network metrics and so on, right? So they're de facto less decentralized or make some make it make the system much more complicated. I think a lot of people don't realize that complexity is bad for security and dependability. So anyway, that's a kind of um, counterintuitive situation. So it's not, you know, it's certainly not that anybody in Bitcoin is in, in a Bitcoin, you know, technology space is anti-innovation or that Bitcoin is old technology. I mean, I think, you know, for example, people have the wrong intuition that um, you know, the, the Bitcoin just ran from the beginning. In fact, it's been, you know, the software has changed remarkably, like been refactored, rewritten, optimized, the network protocols optimized. I mean, the, the initial sync time when you start a new node and sync has been completely redone like f four times and is sort of 10,000 times faster than it was at the beginning. So you can still sync an old node, but people's intuition that, oh, it's the code base is not changing is just wrong. You know, you can look at the code base and see that it's one of the most active open source projects in existence by like, you know, code changes and contributor metrics and things like that. So, and, and it's certainly the case for the robust R&D as well, that, you know, a lot of R&D comes out of the Bitcoin and associated space. So I think sometimes Bitcoin suffers from like not having a, a marketing department um, you know, there is there is no Bitcoin the company. There's no funded uh, Bitcoin like communications or coordinated marketing, and so anything that is discussed is discussed in the open, so people get to see it. You know, see the trade-off discussions. So it doesn't uh, it doesn't really stand up for itself, right? I mean, and so you know, it's a little disappointing when people. Uh, claim that Bitcoin is a toxic or that Bitcoin is stagnant because the facts are actually averted. It's just that there's no marketing department out there explaining these these kind of, you know, computer science background and uh, technical reality things. So and when, when you saw that, that you know, the, the, the Satoshi kind of solved for that problem, when did it strike you that Bitcoin could be a big deal? And And, you know, was it did it seem very far-fetched that it could become what it is today? Or did you see at that time that, well, this could be a really big deal that could, you know, challenge legacy financial systems and, and the way countries operate and, and, you know, all the things that we talk about that seem actually not that far away um, now? Yeah, well, I mean, they seemed a lot further away uh, at the yeah. time. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, so I heard about it through probably having the first email from Satoshi Nakamoto just asking about the citation for Hashcash and I sent him a few papers and things. I thought the technology was interesting, but the question mark was, would it, you know, would it bootstrap? And it took a few years before there was an exchange at all, right? So, you know, it would basically, I mean, I wasn't involved in like, you know, pre 2013 really, other than these early communications and, you know, looking at the news once yeah. in a while, um, that, you know, there's a big question mark about whether it bootstrap and the people involved are probably, were presumably, you know, mining. I think mining is a big part of the bootstrap story uh, because there's a psychological phenomenon where people ascribe value to something that they put ingenuity and effort into. Um, even, even if it doesn't have a direct value, it's kind of like, you know, mm. people do some craft or some art or, you know, in this case, figuring out how to configure this clunky hard to configure software that's doing mining, right? So it wasn't very point and click. So anyways, I think the, the, it took a while to bootstrap and that was my question mark, would it bootstrap? And then I, I would say, you know, clearly it did at some point, right? It reached a dollar. I think that was a kind of wake up call for a lot of people that, you know, it's, it's bootstrapping, it's still around and it's reached a dollar. Wow. That's, that's something. So, mm -hmm. You know, because I was familiar with the previous electronic cash systems, Bitcoin makes some quite different trade-offs. So in particular, the security model takes a bit of getting used to because in the other systems, you have, um, you know, a very high security model where you need sort of, you know, it's kind of like breaking, 
digital signatures or something, you need an enormous amount of compute, so it's unrealistic to attack it. Mm-hmm. But but the the trust model assumptions in those systems are that there's a trusted central server. So it's kind of, you know, so the academics that came and looked at Bitcoin took a while to be convinced that this was a plausible design because the, you know, the security model was basically that the, the good guys have more hash rate than the bad guys. So like 50-50 or, or at least equal uh, cost in attacking the system as defending the system. And, and usually with public key cryptography, which is the norm with other electronic cash systems, the defender has an enormous advantage, just like an unimaginable advantage. So it's almost impossible to do anything to it in, on the attack front, except for the fact that they're central servers. So the central server is like a point of failure or in many cases has to be trusted as well. So there's a trust problem. So after, you know, discovering Bitcoin in like 2013-ish and being exposed to it earlier, um, what, what, why didn't you do what so many of other people have done and kind of, you know, split off into, made a trivial change to it, split it off, become hideously wealthy and, and do Adam Batcoin? Why did you decide to build on, on Bitcoin and to contribute to Bitcoin? Other than, other than the obvious like morality and <laughs> integrity issues. Well, I mean, it was, it was, a uh, I, I, you know, the, the topic, uh, entered, you know, my thought process because when I joined the Bitcoin talk forum, um, a, a small group of altcoiners contacted me and invited me to join, you know, to be a co-founder or join their new altcoin. The dark side. And so I, I thought about this and I'm like, well, I quickly come to the realization I mean, they were asking some interesting technical questions, so I answered some of those things. But then it occurred to me, like, well, wait a minute, why do they want me to be involved? It's probably because they want you put your name on it for marketing purposes. So I was like, well, that's kind of uh, not not very ethical. It's kind of renting your name. It's gonna, yeah. you know, it's gonna burn your reputation, and they're gonna get the money from it or most of it. So I was like, well, you know, firstly, this is illogical. If you're gonna, if you were going to contemplate you know, emulating your reputation, you'd at least want to take the money from it and not like, have somebody else market it, right? Yeah. So I was like, well, I guess you could do that. And so in the course of about like 10 or 15 seconds, I went through the thought process of, well, you know, you could, you know, just fragment this amazing piece of technology and, you know, create a new one, yeah. um, make some money, but actually that would detract from the network effects. It would be kind of destructive, and the constructive thing to do, an ethical thing to do in my mind, is to you know improve Bitcoin because you know money is a network thing, yep. and this is this is not a serious endeavor to do this. It's kind of you know opportunistic, leeching kind of behavior. So I was resolved immediately. Okay, that's that's evil. I won't you know won't even consider that ever again. Kind of thing. <laughs> At what point did altcoin people start reaching out to you? Was it like five minutes after it had its first $1 print or was it like kind of what time? Did... I don't think so. I think it was when I joined the Bitcoin talk forum because I guess there's a, um, there's a section of it, even though it's Bitcoin talk for announcing altcoins, you know, because, because they have a spam problem. There's an enormous incentive. It's kind of like email spam, right? It's an enormous incentive for people to market their coins. Yep. And so okay. I guess to control the spam, they made a separate isolated, like you couldn't stop them. So they made an isolated alt section. So at least they would keep the alt advertisements over there. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess they could have probably figured out how to email me. But as I was on a forum, that was when uh, somebody contacted me about altcoins. And of course, I'd like... But I mean, how early was that? That was like 2013 when the altcoiners started coming around? Or... Yeah, it was 2013, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, I mean, I wasn't really tracking it, but I think there were, was a period where there weren't many altcoins and it really became a phenomena. And I mean, actually there was uh, also, um, I, I kind of thought it was a bit ridiculous because it went to, you know, extreme lengths and it, and it's gone through waves. So it's only actually got worse over time. I think there are now like over 10,000 coins. And they never die. They mostly never die. Like they almost never go to zero. So it's like on the Bitcoin yeah. dominance thing, you know, the, the altcoin, it just keeps getting bigger, right? Because there's there's always altcoins around. They seem like they never die off completely. So I guess over time, there will just be tens of thousands of them. 
Right. I mean, apparently there literally are. If you look on like CoinMarketCap or something, the number is over 10,000. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think it's, you know, the dominance index is, is kind of a bogus economic metric for the market reasons that, you know, are in your background in particular, that they are illiquid and the obvious yeah. fallacy that you've got the unit bias where somebody will create a new coin with a quadrillion units and then, you know, you'll sell me one for a dollar and now we have the highest value coin, but the liquidity is literally zero. Totally. And yeah. so that kind of effect is baked into it because there are lots of, with 10,000 coins, of course, there are many, many highly illiquid coins, which you know barely have a price or are listed only on a decentralized marketplace or very tiny exchange with no liquidity or like, basically forgotten or something, but they still have a value. Yeah. Um, I mean, that would really be the better way is to use volume, but that's just harder data to find and aggregate. So I think people just default to to the easy one, which is which is the market cap one, because you can find price and, and that kind of data easier. Yeah. I mean, the other, th other thing, as you mentioned, is that the, um, you know, it's it's a moving target. So there are always new ones. Yeah. So I suppose even apart from the the sort of illiquidity issue um you know you it, it would sort of be fairer to take a snapshot of you know some number of coins uh let's say three years ago and then look how that holds up against bitcoin and roll that forwards with you know still existing top 20 coins now and, and keep that going because <clears throat> otherwise you're you know it's a moving target right yeah exactly so Juan and I were Juan is our producer to this show. Um, so um, before Adam came on, we were chatting about, you know, B Bitcoin has had so many challenges over the years. And I feel like maybe you have a different view, but I feel it's kind of almost miraculous that we made it this far that, you know, in a thousand realities, maybe Bitcoin doesn't make it in 999. So what do you what, what do you think about maybe maybe you disagree on that? And, and, and what do you think were the big threats to Bitcoin? over history and then and then maybe we can talk a little bit possibly about one of the threats coming forward because it looks like there's a there's a couple on the horizon yeah i mean i guess the regulatory risks seemed higher in the early days just because of the uncertainty yeah and you know in the 90s with internet technology it was a bit of a, a reality adjustment to establishment thinking that you know, anybody could start a video uh, blog like, such as we're doing now, right? And they didn't need permission from a government or yeah. a broadcasting authority. And they could see the truth as they saw it. And so they lost a lot of control of media and privacy of communication. So it changed the balance of power a bit. And so you could see something like an electronic cash system running into the same kinds of things, you know, that, that they might feel like various parts of the establishment might feel that they should have the exclusive right to transfer money or to or seniorage of printing money, right? Yeah. I mean, there's also um, like, you know, non-digital examples of that where people tried to make private money out of, you know, precious metals or things like that and, and, and were shut down by the government. They just generally don't seem to appreciate competition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, that that actually worked out better than I would have thought in the sense that, you know, the, the regulatory acknowledgement of Bitcoin has been lighter touch, more open to innovation. Yeah. And of course there are, you know, a few countries that from time to time will ban Bitcoin, including some that, you know, ban it a dozen times and yet it keeps going. Um, <laughs> and there are also places that, you know, it depends on the culture and, and how people view things, but there are certainly countries where when they ban something, the usage increases yeah. or they ban it through official channels and its usage grows in decentralized marketplaces, for example. If there's a market demand for it, I mean, the market typically will find a way, I think. Right. I mean, I think one, one metric for adoption that I have used from time to time is to say, you know, there's, there's a kind, one kind of Bitcoin bootstrap is... You know, it would be disruptive, but to ask if Bitcoin has bootstrapped beyond the possibility to shut down. Yeah. So, which is to say, you know, if if there was a global ban on Bitcoin, would it stop? Now, of course, nobody's really expecting anything like that at this point. 
but I think it it wouldn't be possible to shut it down, you know, for reasons like there are so many people with some Bitcoin and there's an interest to use it that, you know, you would be able to ask a friend of a friend and find somebody who you could buy or sell some Bitcoin or, you know, peer-to-peer transact and things like that. So I think it's, you know, it's kind of bootstrapped as a largely unstoppable piece of technology, but it's also been regularized at the same time. So that's, that risk has receded, uh, you know, the risk of a ban. I think that bootstrap is, is interesting. And I think it's long past that point now. And of course you've got, you've got, you know, along the way, faster than anybody expected, there was interest at first in the technology from banks, you know, from finance institutions in, in a blockchain technology as a kind of open back office tech. And they like to, you know, keep up with the technology curve as new innovations come in IT and networking. Yeah. So that was interesting. And then, you know, more recently, of course, there's been growing interest in the financial asset and, you know, more ETFs, more futures and derivatives products from established financial institutions and, yeah, just more ways to access the market. But that's probably, I think, seen as from a large part of the community as part of the risk going forward, right? Is that it gets co-opted in some way um, by, by Wall Street. Well, right. I mean, I think the that it's important to my mind for there to be a certain amount of balance so that uh, enough of the currency is in individual hands. I think if too much of it is in ETFs and funds, there's a risk that the, I think you could draw a lesson from the, the so-called fork, you know, the, the fork drama of uh, 2015 era, that there's a risk that if too much of the <clears throat> um, Bitcoin circulation is in ETF or ETF-like products, then the ETF <clears throat> fund managers, they're, they're thinking defensive thinking with corporate lawyers about what their fiduciary responsibility is in response to, you know, regulatory pressures or other, you know, legal frameworks. Well, even, 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 even though their own personal preferences, I mean, um, Arthur Hayes has a pretty good note that he sends out and he mentioned something like that on his recent note about a, you know, a a certain asset manager that, that has the ability to influence, um, you know, the way that individual companies can, 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 can act or behave or interact with Bitcoin. So I think that's, that's interesting as well. Once they get big enough, they can have a little bit of sway on the network. But, but do you agree that, do you think that the kind of the fork drama, the, the scaling wars um, of, I guess that's 2016, 2017, was that the biggest existential threat to Bitcoin to date? Do you think? Well, I think the, the regulatory risk, which, you know, for most of the world didn't really materialize and actually became clearer over time, was you know, was earlier risk perception, and yeah, I think I think the folk drama was, you know, in the middle of it. It looked like a potentially existential risk, and that's you know that's why people uh, were pretty like defensive and you know activist in trading and communicating about that and that. So I think that risk you know was resolved in the right direction and was instructive to everybody you know whatever your views going into that i think the way that it resolved is interesting and and i would say the lesson is that the market prevailed yeah and that's you know generally a good thing but of course it does mean that if too much of the market is in the hands of custodians the market could prevail in the wrong way exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. and i think there are ways to do so you know one, one of the interests to use a custodian is because not everybody is an IT expert and people are rightly worried about, you know, mismanaging backups and physical security yep. of backups and things like that. And so that's why they will sometimes leave assets on a on a Bitcoin exchange or put it in a ETF like product. So the US doesn't have an ETF, but you know, Canada does and a number of other countries worldwide do. Yeah. And um but I do think there are opportunities unique to you know, the smart contracting capabilities of Bitcoin in particular that you can kind of have your cake and eat it. So, you know, one example is the Blockstream Green Wallet, which has a multi-sig arrangement and a time lock so that basically, you know, you can start with a two of two and if you lose one of the keys, then it kind of falls back to a different access method. So there's a, there's a pattern there, which, um, you know, today is configured to protect you from losing a two-factor authentication device, so kind of second 
second factor. But the same technology can be used with, with a custodian, for example. So in, in a green address server, Blockstream two-factor authentication server is not a custodian, but it provides custodian-like, some aspects of custodian-like service, i.e. the security service that there's a two-factor authentication and you can't spend the coins or you can't spend more than a certain percentage of the coins without succeeding at authenticating to this service provider. And so you could see that being used with a custodian too, with an additional failover, you know, that you have the keys, if you lose the keys, eventually after a time period, there's another clause in the contract that comes available, which is that then the custodian can, you know, help you recover the coins and reestablish that. So it, it, it's, it's important and interesting distinction because it means that, you know, the custodian can't do anything with the coins without your cooperation. So it sort of changes the balance a bit. And I think that's, that's a good way to do things. And, you know, at Blockstream, we've done quite a lot of different bits of technology and even marketed assets that seek to add decentralization capabilities to financial instruments. So for example, we have a, a mining note, which is a you know, actual financial instrument that gives you the financial participation in Bitcoin mining over a three year period. And now our interest with technology like this is to incorporate decentralization tech like the new innovations in mining protocols so that a note holder could, you know, with once we've got more technology ready to, ready to ship, that the participant could run their own node and, you know, have some input into choosing the transaction. Usually the easiest thing to do <clears throat> technologically is to do the centralized thing. And so most people... You know, most service providers just do the easy thing and therefore it's all, you know, trust us, central server. So we take, um, you know, we're more working in the protocol space and in the financial instrument space. So we will always try to, you know, innovate on the decentralization end of it. And actually this, this new set of pool protocols was, came out of something that we started at Blockstream in 2014. It's called uh, OpenHash Protocol and there are new versions of that now. Yeah, if, you, if you're an average investor, the, the, the mining space really for a long time has been an institutional only kind of game. So, yeah, it is really interesting. And it's pretty cool to have a product like the Blockstream Mining Note where, you know, investors can come in and, and participate. And, and the, the, you know, the minimum ticket size is kind of hard, kind of high right now. And we've definitely received that feedback from multiple people. But, um, you know, once that gets on exchange and we have secondary trading around it, the, the, the prices should come down. And I think it'll be a, a lot more approachable and digestible to more investors. And I think that'll, that'll also build out the decentralization on that product, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, in fact, with the, you know, the, that uh, approach to market was the lightweight and, and fast entry to market. So we're certainly interested to, to use other market entry points. As you say, once it's exchange listed and actually already it's possible to OTC trade. So find somebody who bought a larger amount and you know the, the initial sale is a kind of primary sale, but now that you know the the sales the first sales tranche is closed, you can buy and pit to pit trade in fact smaller amounts uh, down to point zero one of a BMN, which which is a much lower price point. So I think the, the narrative on Bitcoin has changed a little bit over time. I think initially it was focused more on digital cash. And then over time, I think particularly recently where we've seen just these massive changes in the global economy, um, inflation is more of a concern that people are really looking at as a, as a store of value uh, more than a medium of exchange um, and kind of a digital gold. So how has that changed over time? And do you think we eventually get back to the digital cash, kind of the original narrative at some point? Or do you think that's still there with Lightning? It seems like that's been more topical recently ever since the, the El Salvador kind of announcement last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think um, Bitcoin has a lot of interesting features and characteristics. So it, it's, it appeals to different people for different reasons. And the permissionlessness and fact that you can, you know, just install a piece of software on a smartphone and start transacting globally without, you know, needing anybody's permission or an intermediary is, is, um, you know, it's a key differentiator in a, in a, in a way, you know, there's a, a sort of concept of a, a differentiated value, which is basically an area where the product is unique and nothing can really compete with it or the incumbents can't compete with it. And I think that that is the sweet point for Bitcoin because 
financial like conventional financial institutions simply can't do that you know they're, they're regulatorily precluded from mm -hmm. you know offer people electronic cash basically i mean they can you know offer, offer people bitcoin and sell it to them and they can install it in wallets but they can't offer uh, you know bank accounts on that basis they're precluded so i think that is it's, it's not really possible for them to compete against that and so that is a key part of the value proposition but I suppose in the same way that the internet was a very interesting turning point for the balance of power and you know more direct user control of their electronic destiny, investors can look at that, the interest in that technology, and buy shares in it. So in the internet era, you could buy you know shares in Cisco and PayPal and all these different companies, and that if you did it at the right time, you you know you you benefited immensely from the, the rise of an adoption of this network technology and so with bitcoin i mean of course there are companies too but you can buy the electronic cash token so i think you know you can view the value of bitcoin as tied up with um these use cases and so of course people people can and will buy it even if they don't personally have a strong need for the permissionless electronic money right i mean somebody living in a Western country, maybe they don't really do anything very interesting and they don't as, don't need it as such. But, you know, it's still very cool technology. So lots of people will do it because they think it's cool or as an insurance policy. Yeah. And, of course, the on-correlation and electronic gold-like properties help. Yeah. And the adoption curve has been very steep at times, so its price is appreciated very highly. So, you know, many people will obviously buy things if the price is going up, um, even if they don't have a direct need themselves, they assume correctly that other people see a strong attraction to it. And actually, it's an interesting question because, you know, some people will talk about a sort of ETF failure point or a PayPal 2.0, by which they mean that some of these use cases could probably be perfectly viable in isolation. Yeah. So, you know, if Bitcoin were to be only in ETFs and, you know, literally... A digital gold that can only be held in that format that might still be financially interesting if you can you know audit the supply see that that's happening and have it be an uncorrelated gold hedge without the electronic cash parts that would still that could still financially succeed of course it's not nearly as interesting to many of us and it's presumably it's it's market value like its market value would be lower reflective of that so i think it's interesting for bitcoin to you know to reach its potential in being in capturing both of those use cases but that's that's a factor. Yeah, it feels like you know, I feels like in different regions, maybe we'll have slightly different uses. I think kind of reminded of that seeing the adoption in El Salvador, because in the in Western world, I would think for people to go out and use Bitcoin to buy coffee, you definitely want to see the volatility come down. Like I'm not going to use my Bitcoin to buy coffee because of you know the I think it's going to be worth more in the future, right? Kind of a time value, a reverse time value of money thing. So for maybe in Western countries where people have no issues doing basic transactions um, and like you said are not as concerned about privacy or, or whatever then maybe the volatility needs to come down in bitcoin it needs to flatten out a little bit before it becomes attractive as a, a medium of exchange yeah i mean it's kind of like being able to make a payment directly from a stock investment yes that yeah. you want to hold or something right that you have you know high hopes for and I mean, of course, some people are all in, so they have no choice, right? <laughs> or or they uh, you know, they take low interest loans as a kind of tax punish strategy to defer uh, selling. But I think the other yeah. thing is, you know, you can, you know, you get the pizza effect, as you mentioned, right? So people will buy things with Bitcoin and then years later, it will turn out to be an expensive purchase. Um, yeah. So what, what I try to do to avoid that is if I you know, so, some things you want to buy with Bitcoin for kind of privacy reasons or because it's easier. And uh, just like wire transfers and credit cards and debit cards are annoying. Like they're, they're clunky, they're painful, they're error prone. So Bitcoin is just easier too, right? And so I think, you know, what, what I've done as, at times is use Bitcoin to pay for something and then go buy some more Bitcoin quickly yeah. before the yeah. price moves too much so that I'm not going to be like really annoyed that I you know, spent 10 times the current price on, you know, a router or some something yeah. that you're trying to buy. So looking forward, I mean, I, I wrote out these questions before the news of the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's had some really 
interesting and exciting news come out over the last couple of weeks. But what do you think is the most exciting thing to look forward in the Bitcoin space at the moment? Um, I mean, for the market, I think, you know, usually it seems like Bitcoin has surprised to the upside in terms of stages of deployment. Like people have said, you know, $10,000 is, is kind of, you know, a crazy price. And now that's, you know, in, in a past, right? And so from the price front and in terms of types of users, right? Recalling that earlier, nobody would have imagined that banks would want to be involved with Bitcoin. And now we have, you know, banks offering Bitcoin denominated bank accounts yeah. and, you know, sort of queuing up to get active in the space uh, with Bitcoin as an asset class or Bitcoin secured loans. And, you know, we're seeing some early signs of government sort of, I guess the El Salvador news, like the sovereign, sovereign involvement, adoption. you know, there may actually yeah. be some indirectly some sovereign uh, mining or sovereign Bitcoin holdings or, you know, Bitcoin reserves. So, you know, those kind of things earlier on, people thought, you know, oh, that's a pipe dream. That'll never happen. Yeah. But, you know, it, it seems like these things are just keep happening and happening at a faster pace than people imagine. So it's uh, like the Chinese uh, saying about live, blessed to live in interesting times. So it really is does feel a lot like that because you know, all these uh, wild things just keep happening as new kind of benchmarks of adoption or new first exemplar of a type of institution. Uh, you know, the phenomena of uh, companies putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet, I thought it was very interesting. You know, that, that wasn't something people foresaw, I think, but it makes a lot of sense. Of course, the current macro environment precipitated by COVID, but, you know, the, the makings of it were obviously there since probably 2008, has focused a lot of people's minds on inflation because clearly the the real inflation rate is much higher than the consumer price index claimed rates and so on. I was going to say that's another crazy one too, because I mean, just two or three years ago, I would talk to analysts and I would talk about inflation and they would say the CPI is low. I said, no, no, I don't mean CPI. I mean, inflation, like my kid's tuition going up every year, right? My house price going up, you know, these kind of things. And, and, and people would look at you and just not admit that there was any inflation anywhere. And I think it was creeping higher. It has been for, you know, arguably a generation. Um, and, and, and you're, you're very right that COVID just lit a fire on all this Tinder that's been, um, stacked up and accelerated a lot of trends. And, and Bitcoin is probably one of those big trends, I think. Yeah. Well, that, that's great, Adam. Thanks a lot for your time today. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and joining us on our first podcast. Yeah, here's to many more. It's, exactly. Uh, it's been a fun conversation and covered some topics that probably haven't been put on a video before. So that's cool. Definitely. Yeah, and look forward to having you back again. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Blockstream Talk. If you want to support the show, feel free to leave a review, like, subscribe, and share. It really helps us get on the right side of the social media algos. And follow us at Blockstream Talk on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.